0: Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown. And if you want to know more about classical music, then you're in the right place. Welcome to LPO Offstage. Alongside insights relating to all sides of the classical music industry, from performance anxiety to complex touring schedules, etc., etc., we also like to take a detailed look inside some key pieces of music. And today it's the turn of a composer who is a central part to any orchestra's output, Johannes Brahms, specifically, his first symphony. So, today I'm joined by Fiona Hyam, violinist at the LPO, timphonist Simon Carrington, and horn player Mark Vines, who you may remember back in series three revealed that he had lost his horn not one, not two, but three times. I mean, it's something that stayed with me. I look behind myself all the time. Fiona, Simon, and Mark, welcome.
1: Thank you. Hi. Hi,
0: Yoranda. Now we are here backstage at the buzzing South Bank Center. There are lifts going up and down, rehearsals happening, events as well in the foyer. So you will hear some background noise, but we are in the thick of it. Back to Brahms. Fiona, could you try to sum up Brahms's work in three words? No. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's, that's completely impossible.
2: Um, all I can say about String playing, as far as Brahms' symphonies is concerned is that it's one of the hardest things about it is to get the right sound and to find a sort of legato, real legato sound. That's one of the hardest things about it because it is written in a way with such long lines and it's different, really different than other composers from that point of view. So you, you really, I think you really have to get into the zone mm. of Brahms' And also, at the same time, not try too hard so that you're not sort of pressing the sound too much to somehow get to the right level of using your bow in a sort of free way, but at the same time keeping the line. It's not easy to play, that's what I would say, from the string playing
0: point of view. It's really well summed up. How does a section go about getting that sound? Do you speak about it beforehand? How do you make sure that you're approaching it?
2: Well, no, we wouldn't speak about it beforehand, but amongst ourselves, but hopefully we would get that insight from the conductor. You know, and I have found there are different conductors have had a very effective way of talking about how to get the Brahms sound, particularly. And others are not so good at it, you know, so then it's sort of left more up to you.
0: Well, I'm glad that you went further than the three words. A good insight. I'm gonna tap back into some of the things you said there later on. Mark, can you sum up Brahms in three words?
1: Same as Fiona, I can't sum him up in three <laughs> words. <laughs> um As a horn player, Brahms is what we look to as the pinnacle of romantic music, really. So it's just always a pleasure to play.
0: I'm getting legato. I've got romantic. I'm going to take these words. I'm I'm creating. So, uh, Simon, can you give me an extra word to add to that? Beard. Expand. Well, he had a. (laughs) He had a beard.
3: (laughs) Towards the end of his life. That's very interesting. Particularly helpful, but I don't know. Maybe it is indicative of some bearded romantic. Which I don't you can say lush. Yeah.
2: I think what Simon said is, is relevant because one of the things I think we need to get away from when we play Brahms is this image of this old man in a chair with a big beard mm-hmm. and sort of feeling it's very, very heavy and serious and romantic in a bad way. Actually, some of the best conductors we've worked with has made us realise that there's a lightness as well that you can get in Brahms.
3: I mean, you've both talked about the sound of your, your respective instruments from a timpani point of view particularly with this symphony actually his first symphony i mean it starts off with this beating heart timpani that's just a few quavers maybe we're going to come back to that I, no
0: no let's go there now know, this but, is um,
3: on on the page just forte quavers going through you know and you might think well that just goes bang 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 but you know that's the wrong note actually bang 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 i mean you'd be right If you look at the beginning of the score, it looks logical, you know, in the same way as, say, you know, a a Beethoven symphony, there are similar forces, but something about the sound is so much more lush and romantic than any Beethoven that I could think of, similarly Schumann or or Mendelssohn.
2: I was just going to say that having listened to the opening of loads of different versions of this symphony, it's incredible how different that Timp introduction sounds you know i mean it can be it can start and just feel like it's completely at the right tempo and it's just moving forward or it can sound so portentous like
3: you know and and it sort of sits down because um i mean the tradition the sort of the more established 20th century way of playing the piece is for it to be much Slower, and maybe you could argue a little bit turgid. Yes. Um, you know, really, bomb, 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 and everything kind of yeah. swims around that, and it gets slower and slower. It's like wading through treacle. Yeah. And actually, um, what I remember doing it with one of our most eminent conductors, who contended that Brahms was studying the Matthew Passion at the time. Oh. And actually, if you listen to the very beginning of the St Matthew Passion although it's in a different key. Harmonically, and the, the lines that go up and then split and then come back together again, it's very, very similar to Brahms' one. You
2: hit the nail on the head though, Simon, because yeah. that's the thing for me. I mean, having done loads and loads of performances of Brahms over the years, including the Savalish recordings back in 91, when we did it with Vlad, I felt there was a lot of resistance from a lot of players to play it in a different way, but it was faster and lighter and I think, ultimately, I think it worked brilliantly. Mm. It was a bit surprising at the beginning and a bit shocking in a way.
3: I'm not sure no. if that was the first time he had conducted the piece, but he certainly started off with very much in. Bum, 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 yes. Da, 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 with yeah. that kind of idea. And then, actually, as we performed it a few times, it did. It did broaden out, not to the previous no. points of you know the way that we were used to playing it. But I think there's a a point beyond which it can't go because it, if the orchestra is still making some sort of Brahmsian sound, it just doesn't work.
2: But if you even listen to tempo. recordings now, compare them, it does feel still faster and lighter. I mean more moving. Yes, does, Not yeah. so much faster as just more more moving and
3: it's more lucid. Just yeah. generally
2: a bit lighter. It doesn't get yeah. bogged down. As he was saying, like it can get Brahms I think is really is a danger of some some conductors letting it get very bogged down and very heavy.
3: And actually apparently the orchestra and uh, I don't know if, if this was the orchestra that did the premiere, but his and court orchestra was only forty or fifty players mm-hmm. and smaller instruments and A faster tempo would have lent itself... They brought a beautiful resonant hall there in which it sounded wonderful anyway at a fast tempo and with a small bunch of players. They probably filled the hall a bit like, you know, you do in the the music variety. It just... um, You can play on the timpani. You can play a cardboard box there. It sounds good. Sounds like Um, a
2: Stradivarius when you play in a... Yeah. ...like that. You've got (laughs) an old box like
0: I have. So so then that, that discussion was so insightful. What is your preference, if I had to say fast, mid or slow, what would you say?
1: Well, I think it's less about the speed and it's more about the direction. Yeah. So if you can have a, a conductor that can interpret it at a very slow speed, but if it has a drive to it, it doesn't matter how slow or fast it is if this conductor has that intensity. Mm-hmm. So it's more about the direction. Interesting what you're saying about Vladimir coming in with that idea but then adjusting it as he performed it with the orchestra because I think that's exactly what Brahms needs. The conductor needs to be a real musician, the, the best Brahms conductors are, are musicians and they will respond to the orchestra. So they will listen to what they've got in front of them. They'll listen to the solos. They'll listen to that string sound, to the phrasing. I don't think you can come in with a preconceived idea and not be prepared to adjust. So your performance of Brahms or One might be different with the same orchestra in two different halls. It might be different with two different orchestras in the same hall. So I think it's a really collaborative sort of way of working when you're conducting Brahms.
0: And it's amazing that here we're, we're simply talking about the opening. I mean, we haven't even got into the main body of the symphony yet. And Brahms took 20 years to complete his first symphony. Do you feel a sense of struggle within the work, Mark?
1: I think it's very easy to hear a sense of struggle in the work and assume that's because it took 20 years. I think that's adding our own thoughts to it. There is definitely that sense of struggle and resolution throughout the and especially in the, the first and last movements. But I think just to assume that it was because he was finding it difficult, I what I find is that some other composers, you can hear their development over time. So if you take Dvorak and Bruckner, their early symphonies, you can hear where they're starting from, and they only really reach that perfection later on. Yet we still play their early works. I think Brahms didn't let that happen. So I think... I don't know what he was doing over those 20 years. <laughs> he was running other things, but I don't think he finished this symphony until it was ready. So I'm sure there were moments of struggle during it, but I don't think that's necessarily why the struggle is in the piece. I could be wrong, but there's no, no way of knowing. No,
0: perception.
2: The slow movement with the beautiful solos, you know, the oboe and the violin and everything, and the horn, isn't it, in the same movement, they share that theme. It's such a beautiful, in a way, happy movement, isn't it? It's such a lovely sound and a personal recollection for me because my ex-partner was leading the orchestra for the Savalish session that Brahms won in nineteen ninety one. He had to play that famous violin solo at the end of that movement and I just remember it being, you know, very exciting to hear that hear that played in that studio. It's wonderful string playing, it's wonderful string writing, and it's fantastic to play for the strings, Brahms. But if I did have to envy anybody's part in this writing, it's the horn part, because the writing for the horns is just incredible, and some of the solos are just beautiful. So if I did play another instrument in a Brahms symphony, it would have to be the horn.
0: Well, I love that you've spoken about the horns there, because, you know, I do wonder sometimes how certain composers write for certain instruments. Let's delve into the horns a little bit, since we have Mark Vines here. Can you tell me a bit about the big horn moment at the start of the finale and why Brahms writes so well for your instrument?
1: Brahms really understood the horn. He was writing for a natural horn, although most players were using valve horns by this time. But he just has a sense of what the horn's all about. And um, I think the horn is the heart and soul of his music. The moment at the beginning of the fourth movement, which was supposed to imitate outporns I think I've never played that without emotion, I've never not felt emotion playing that moment because it's just it's such a special part where everything releases and you've got this absolutely beautiful outporn thing and it's just it brings goosebumps to me every time I play it or every time I hear it
0: That's really interesting, because I always wonder, especially speaking to the amazing musicians of the LPO, you're playing music a lot. You're you're playing through repertoire, new pieces of music. Do you get that same feeling when you listen? So I'm glad you answered that, Mark, but I'm going to throw it to Simon. When you listen to this piece, do you get the same feeling as when you play it?
3: I don't really listen to it other than when we play it. Uh Aha. No, that's an interesting one. I used to love listening to it. When I was a student and got to know it, and probably since I started playing it, I don't listen to it very often. It's a really big subject, that. about listening to classical music... Yeah, I think it
0: is a whole podcast in itself, yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: If I can add to that, when I said listening to it, in a way I meant when I'm in the section but not playing that part. Ah. So Brahms nearly always wrote four horn parts, but they were actually written in two pairs. So the first and second are one pair of horns. The third and fourth are a second pair of horns in a different key. I'm the third horn in the orchestra I sometimes play first horn but I often play third horn the third horn parts are often even better in Brahms they're often a little bit higher key so they have that nice sound this particular part that we've been talking about is in the first and second horns so if I'm sitting on third I'm getting the goosebumps from listening to the people down the line playing it if I'm sitting on first I'm (laughs) trying to create them so (laughs) so the listening is more I'm more talking about listening from within the orchestra rather than externally
2: can I ask you a question actually about it isn't it not true that You have to transpose a lot in the horn parts in Brahms.
1: We do, because now we're playing them on modern horns, and this goes back to what I was talking about before. So he was writing for natural horns crooked in certain keys, but already by then most players were using valve horns rather than just putting a crook in in the key of E, for instance. They would be playing a horn that might be pitched in F and transposing. So actually in Brahms 1 in particular, the 3rd and 4th, Parts in the third movement, they're in B natural. Oh. We read in the key of F. We we have to transpose down an augmented fourth, oh. which Sorry. in Sorry. <laughs> in theory anxiety yeah, in listens, theory it's an it. absolute nightmare. <laughs> the, 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 the reality is we know it. You learn it when you're at college. You learn that bit. It's one of the excerpts you learn. You know, for for those listening that don't understand the musical
0: term of transposition, can you tell us what that means?
1: Yeah, so um, if it's written in a certain key, but you're playing an instrument that is pitched in a in a different key, you have to, on the fly, change the note you're playing. So, for instance, a common key would be E-flat. My horn is pitched in F. In the key of E-flat, if I see a C-natural, I would play a B-flat. Oh. So certain keys are easier than others. Certain keys are more natural. A B B-natural is not a natural key. No, it's, <laughs> that it's makes not sense. a natural <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it doesn't come up too often.
0: Fantastic. I've got my hand up here yeah. in the studio. Do you, you're transposing on the fly, Oh, Are yeah. you saying? Yeah. So why don't they just write it in the key that you need it?
1: Because then you wouldn't see what he intended. So because he's writing for natural horn, it's the knowledge of where certain notes would have been played using the right hand to stop the sound. So you would get a different quality of sound. The natural horn technique is very different from valve horn technique. So my feeling is if you're playing that sort of music on a modern horn, you need to be aware of how it would have sounded or what Brahms had in mind. If you can read it in the key he wrote, you know that a certain note, a C sharp, for instance, or a B natural particularly, would be stopped. An open C would be an open, a bigger note. So, And that can affect how you phrase it. So you need to be able to see the original key. I have, to, have to just
2: admit I here this. that I'm not a horn geek. But the reason <laughs> I asked, asked that question is because... Many, many years ago, I had a boyfriend who was a horn player who was just starting out as a freelance player. And he, he said to me one day, It's so difficult playing Brahms symphonies because you have to transpose, you right <laughs> know, down the wall. So and, and I just thought, How do you do that? You know, and it's always stayed in my head. So that's what I wanted
1: to ask you. Yeah, I mean, when, actually, when you're first learning them, yeah, it can be tough, but you, you tend to learn the tricky bits. Luckily, he only, <laughs> luckily, he only wrote four symphonies. <laughs> um, and there's only a couple of movements I can think of that are in B Natural. The other one is the second movement of the second symphony. And that's very intricate, and it always comes up in auditions. So you learn it at college... I am absolutely
0: floored. I think that is really <laughs> insightful. I've moved from the timpani. I'm so sorry now, Simon. I mean, that opening, <laughs> no, you, you can deal with that. But that bang, is... bang,
3: bang, bang, bang. That, that is it.
0: We've spoken about how Brahms writes for the French horn, but what about the other instruments that
3: we have here in the studio?
0: How does Brahms write for timpani?
3: He writes uh, in this piece for a pair of drums, although I'd, I'd use three Drums. In fact, going back to the beginning, sometimes, in the old style, when you wanted a really big, lush sound, because I don't think I'd be dobbing my double bass friends in here by saying that they play a bottom C at the beginning, you know, to make it really, really huge, rich sound, and you sort of need to match that somehow on the timpani. So, I have. I mean, I I wouldn't do it these days, but um, in the old... Style. You can use two Cs together, two drums both tuned to C, and play, and then you get double the amount of sound. You would play then in a fairly relaxed manner, so that you don't get an aggressive sound, but you get a full root sound, as Fiona was describing, on the as it is for the strings and, and indeed all instruments. So he sticks to the tonic and dominant of the movement in the custom style of the of the classical and romantic composers. But again, you have to get that sound world right. You cannot make too brittle a sound in Brahms. Unless that's being matched elsewhere in the orchestra, then you can start to think about it. But generally speaking, um, particularly in this symphony, actually, it's got to be a really full, rich sound Mm. that actually does suit the bigger modern timpani that we tend to play these days. I think Brahms would have liked that sound for this symphony. But yeah, he keeps it simple and it's very effective and actually some quite unusual devices apart from the opening. I mean, in the slow moments, he writes beautifully for the timpani, but nothing more than mezzo forte, Uh um, where you're just filling in the sound a little bit. And right at the end of the second movement, you're playing with the cello pizzicati in E major as they're going up an arpeggio, And you've got to stay with them somehow. And then the leader comes in to play the last bar of that arpeggio. And you've got to play with them and support them without being at all overbearing, you know, within pianism, It's quite an interesting use of the instrument.
2: Because it's very delicate Um, at that point. The sound balance is very delicate between the solos, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and it has to be right, otherwise... You ruin the the leader's lovely solo.
2: This orchestra really is a Brahms orchestra though, having said that, because we have I talked on this podcast about the two cycles that we've recorded which are very different, one in the studio in Abbey Road, studio number one in 91 with Savalish, which was very much a sort of cut and paste recording like they used to do, we used to go into the studio right, we're going to record Brahms one now we never do that now, ah. I'd just like to say what a difference there is between that way of working and what we do now, which is mostly recording live performances. Kurt Mazur conducted many Brahms symphonies and many Brahms ones with us, but unfortunately none of them were recorded Mm. because he'd already recorded them in America and with other orchestras, and so we couldn't record them, actually. But I think he established a real Brahms string sound in this orchestra, He and then Tanchadet. They really changed the string sound of the LPO, to a really beautiful, lush, romantic sound, I think, mm. having lived through all that period, you know.
3: He also, Mazur, had a, a marvellous way of doing the symphonies, the Brahms symphonies and the Beatles in the, pretty much in the traditional style, but without it being at all turgid, and the Tempe were always, I don't know about you guys, from where I sat, just spot on. Yeah. He was not, I think it's fair to say, an easy man to work with. <laughs> um, he and I, you know, had our moments across the orchestra because he, he very specifically wanted this sound, which sometimes it was, it was hard to actually play anything that he liked. you were on the edge of your seat the whole time. But the overall effect, I think, uh, was magnificent sound-wise and, and, and musically.
2: And I'll never forget his German Requiem Brahms German Requiem, which was actually did bring tears to many people's eyes. You know who were playing in it.
3: Yeah, we must have done it here. I also remember doing it in St Paul's Cathedral. Yes, live on Radio Three. He wasn't a fan of what I was doing that night. If anyone's ever <laughs> ever played in St Paul's Cathedral, be familiar with the acoustic. Or oh, our listeners acoustics. out there oh, know absolutely. how big. A, if you go and listen to a concert there. If you're sitting further than three metres back from, from the front of the orchestra, it's just a waste of time. It's a waste of
0: you getting all of them, yeah,
3: yeah. you you're a thousand different concerts going on because of, because of the boom. It's very hard to hear anything, and I was laying it down a bit. And I wish I had a recording of this. I just remember him shouting, Timpani, you are too loud!
0: <laughs> I'm glad that you said that you were laying it on a bit as well, though, because
2: it well, really have to does, say does that. I mean, Yeah, yeah. It does, doesn't it? He would never Whatever. give up, though. He would never give up until he got the sound he wanted. I mean, there were so many funny moments. As you say, he wasn't an easy man to work for. But I do think he was a genius in so many ways, you know. And he would never accept what he used to call a shameless mezzo forte. <laughs> he used to say, you're shameless mezzo forte. You know, when he wanted it. Piano. He'd ask for things like sometimes nine times in a row. No, again, again, again. And people go... You know, and eventually they'd just do it because they were so fed up with him being on their backs to get this sound. Yes. They'd eventually everybody would really do it, you know. And then he'd be happy.
0: But how does Brahms write for the strings, violin well, in particular? he
2: writes the most beautiful, beautiful lines, you know, beautiful tunes, beautiful themes, and also some quite complicated passages to get together and things like with, with complicated syncopations and stuff. There's one famous bit, I think, in, this, in Brahms' one for the first violins, which they actually use for an audition excerpt as well. So he writes things that are not easy to play as well, but I wouldn't say, if you were thinking of Brahms, you wouldn't think that's the most technically difficult. Composer, the difficulties come more in how to play it, to find exactly like Simon was saying, the right sound, the right lightness or depth in the sound. And that's where the difficulties come, I think, for
0: the string players. Well, there is so much to learn just to be able to function within this amazing piece. Cast your minds back to when you first ever played it, to then how you play it now. And, you know, you've remarked a little bit, Mark, about the learning and the muscle memory, there's a lot of adaptation that I'm hearing has to happen. So how do you feel when you play it then and now? Fiona. I think
2: probably then I was trying too hard to play everything, probably pressing too much to get the right kind of sound and just being generally too uptight about it. I think with the years, you are able to sit back a little bit and be a little bit more objective about what you're doing and therefore... It becomes easier
0: uh-huh.
2: it's not easy to play Brahms brilliantly when you just first start out in the profession. I would say very good.
1: I would completely go along with that it, it, I mean he's a composer. you have to learn to inhabit his music as a horn player. I remember in the early days always enjoying playing Brahms, but he used to be quite pearly scary you know full of solos full of full of difficult transpositions as we talked about it's very easy to get very self-obsessed with what you're doing how you're playing this and how you're playing that and I think over time every time you perform Brahms you, you learn a little bit more now it just I feel like I know what to do with Brahms, and then, it's, then you can just relax, you can respond to what's going on around you, you can respond to what the conductor's doing. So, yeah, I, I love playing Brahms. I've always
3: loved it, but it's in a different way now that Mulder, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a great place to be in, it's good. Yeah.
0: And Simon?
3: Well, I don't remember anything about the first time I played it because it was a very long time ago when I was still at college, I think. But with the experience of having played it, I couldn't say how many, it's got to be a hundred times since then. I think every time you learn something more about the part and what you fit in with, So now, then I wouldn't have realised, well that bit you're playing tutti in an obvious way with the trumpets and, and people that play right next to you. This bit here, you've really got to be aware of the second violin right at the front of the orchestra. Here, you're playing with the flutes and the front line of... Line of wind, so you've got to think about all of those things affect where you play, how you play, articulation-wise, and intonation-wise as well, which you're constantly adjusting according to whether you're playing loudly or softly. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, Yolanda. But yeah, um, yeah it's good. Yeah. So in terms of how it feels, it probably just feels gradually, contrary to um, Mark and Fiona, Mark, you know, more and more difficult because because <laughs> you're more and more aware of. Of all the various things, and it depends where you're playing, of course, as well, because halls vary so much. Got one thing that relates to Brahms one. It's actually more about halls than than the piece itself. But I remember we did it on a tour with Eschenbach around Germany, and then we went at some point in that within that tour to the Konzerthaus. And I played, I had the same drums, same orchestra in front of me, and I'm playing the same way, and we did the short seating rehearsal. And I was just thinking, this is just not working. My drums are not sounding in here. And I was was playing in the same way that I had had to in the other halls. I said, I'm just trying too hard here. And I took about 25% of the effort away in that hall in the Concerticabelle. And the the point about this is is off topic, but about how orchestras develop their own sound. And they've got a magnificent hall there that you hardly have to do anything. And if you do too much, it simply doesn't sound. Our hall here that we know and love is we'll love quite, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say that. It's quite the opposite. You have to work so hard to make a sound in there that gets anywhere, anywhere near filling the mm. hall. So we've got all of that sort of stuff to deal with as well as you know playing here and then travelling around the world and, and hearing, feeling the experience of playing the same piece in lots of different yeah. acoustics.
0: Constantly learning, constantly adapting. I think it's fabulous what you all do. I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions now, if I can. A this or that kind of question. It's important pre concert to make sure you've had something to eat. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this already, Simon. So I'm going to start with you, Fiona. Pre concert, banana or sandwich?
2: Neither. Oh. I tend to eat bananas for breakfast, actually. But um, oh. no, I don't really like to eat much before a concert actually much at all in the evening to be honest so I would probably have a very late lunch Mm. and not eat before the concert sometimes I've been known to have a coffee before a concert which is not a normal thing to do because it makes some people shake but sometimes I just
0: need it to wake my brain up. Good stuff, neither maybe a coffee. Uh, For you Mark
1: They used to sell in the cafe here at the South Bank a banana and peanut butter sandwich and they've stopped doing it which is really sad because I loved it and it was the best of both worlds. I love that and I will
0: try to speak to them.
1: Because of <laughs> Please
3: <course> do.
0: <laughs> anything to fuel the LPL I'm right behind oh, the mixture of the both. Good. And for you, Simon?
3: I really don't know. I don't think I've got the answer right. I mean, it, for me to feel, you know, 100% for concerts these days, it is really hard mm. because obviously I'm terrified of, of not having enough and I've fallen foul of that before now um, on tour not eating enough before a concert and feeling very uncomfortable so i always eat something but usually too much especially with the food market out here and there's so much lovely uh choice i'm going to try today the um lebanese salad and falafel stall because that shouldn't weigh me down too much and a bit easier to digest but very pleasant i don't know i'll, yeah, I'll see what there is much more
0: wholesome there. than the banana or sandwich very very good <laughs> well i'll be at the concert tonight so i look forward to seeing the effect of that um, <laughs> what are you listening to this week just you and your earpods doesn't have to be classical whatever it is you're listening to mark what do you listen to
1: i've been listening to a jazz singer called samara joy oh, we yes. were lucky enough to go and see her at ronnie scott's a year or two ago and she was just breaking through and now she's winning Grammys yeah. and now everyone's heard of her, but I, I love her voice.
0: We'll start a playlist here, you never know. Fiona. <laughs> who are you listening
1: to?
2: I think I think you were saying earlier that the whole subject of musicians listening to music is another podcast and I think yeah. that because I honestly don't listen to very much classical music because I have to listen to things to learn them sometimes, so it becomes a bit of a chore, and then I don't tend to sit down and listen to things for pleasure, which is a bit of a shame, but considering I'm spending 90% of my time playing, then it's...
0: So do you listen to anything else? Do you listen to, I don't know, podcasts or radio? Yeah, I listen to podcasts.
2: I listen Actually, I love the World Service. I'm addicted to the World Service. I listen to that a lot.
0: And
3: Simon, what do you listen to? All sorts of things. Currently, lots of jazz, actually, so... This week or mostly been listening to Bill Evans. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, most particularly because somebody um posted a picture somewhere saying Spring is Here. And I thought you must listen to Bill Evans' version of Spring Is Here, which I really do recommend to everybody out there if they if they don't know it, because it's got that wonderful kind of mellowness and slight, almost ironic happiness, but it, it's not. It's kind of it's as though he's saying to himself I should be feeling happy about this, but I'm, I'm really not. Bill Evans, spring is here.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much. And here on Series 6 of LPO Offstage, can you imagine we're on Series 6 already, we have a new feature, which is questions from our LPO Offstage listeners, and they have written in a question to you to ask, do you still get nervous? Fiona, do you get nervous? No.
2: I mean, I have never really suffered from nerves on stage I tend to feel most comfortable when I'm on the stage but having said that I'm not saying that I'm invincible you know of course if there's a difficult piece that you have done a lot of work on you're particularly worried about whatever then you will have a certain amount of adrenaline which you need you need that adrenaline really yes but it doesn't affect my performance I mean auditions are a different thing they're a whole different thing and I would never say I never got nervous for an audition
0: Simon, how about for you? Do you ever get nervous? I wouldn't.
3: So I'd get nervous playing something like Brahms 1 because, I mean, apart from a couple of quite tricky bits towards the end, I wouldn't be nervous about them. I'd get keyed up for everything. It's a different kind of sensation. I mean, you don't just go on there feeling nothing. And you've, I think it's a misconception. People say, well, you've played that loads of times before. Surely you wouldn't get nervous or you, you can do it. And you've still got to play it. Yes. You know, you still start from the beginning and have to get through to the end. It really doesn't matter how many times you played something. And in in a way, the more you play something, the more you know how difficult and complex it can become and what the pitfalls are. So and obviously with the amount of um, contemporary music we play as well and everything recorded on very little rehearsal and um, all of that kind of thing that does make me extremely let's say keyed up yeah adrenaline doesn't describe it really
0: yeah brilliant thank you very much and mark do you ever get nervous
1: what I love about these answers is I think you'll probably remember we actually did a whole podcast on nerves in probably series one, I think. Series
0: three, yes. Yeah. Series, series three, three was there wow. was a whole episode on nerves, yeah. Yeah
1: and you were on musicians don't like to use the word nervous or nerves. I think Simon's way of putting it as keyed up is good, adrenaline. I would freely admit that I still get nervous, not all the time but sometimes I think those we nerves never know it, uh, Well I'm just going to add to that, so I think the nerves can be healthy and the most important thing is that the nerves need to be under control so they don't need to be taking over, so you can use those nerves and they can help your performance, so I do feel nerves but I, these days I welcome them
0: do check out our episode in series three because it is also about how do you control it? How do you process it? Not even keep it under wraps because that's dangerous in itself. How do you control it and use it, if you like, for for your music making? So a great question and thank you very much for all of your answers. As LPO Offstage fans, if you would like to email in any question to our podcast, do that via email to offstage at lpo.org.uk. We've been speaking Brahms one here in this episode and I didn't get to ask uh, the both of you Simon and Mark if you could play any instrument that wasn't
3: your designated
0: instrument on Brahms one what would it be Simon
3: I think I'd have to be very boring and say the French horn as well that's not boring
0: at all (laughs) I love that you love a challenge
3: (laughs) Yeah, because of this wonderfully rich writing that is so effective for the instrument and there's also that bit uh, the beginning of the second movement where you go bah, bah, bah. <laughs>
1: That's the one. That's, the, the, That's the natural a, there's horn. There's the
3: old hand-stop note there, and I'd, I'd love to have a go at that. <laughs> Sounds I'd love to hear you have a go at that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next rehearsal, it's on. So we've <laughs> established that we've all got French horn envy. Absolutely. Well, what does the French horn player say? Uh, Mark, what would you choose?
1: I, I was really trying to think of another instrument I'd want to play in this piece, but I cannot imagine playing it on anything other than the horn. <gasps> except there is one oh. other instrument I think I'd have, like to have a go at in this piece. It'd have to be trombone because they don't play at all for the first three movements and then they have one of the most special moments in the piece just after the horn call in the fourth movement so they basically do none of the work and get all of the glory so why not?
0: Well, thank you all so much for your insight and information on Brahms One. It's been really great speaking to you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Yolanda. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Fiona Hyam, Simon Carrington and Mark Vines for such a great conversation on Brahms One and so much more. Please do get in touch with any of your questions. We have an email address, offstage at lpo.org.uk. And if you'd like to know what musicians eat for breakfast or anything else, do not hesitate to email us and see you for the next episode of LPO Offstage.